Welcome to Heavy Hitter Sports, the podcast focused on inspirational sports game changers. I'm your host, Mark Hogesang. Today's guest is Joanne Scott, who's the Managing Director of Men's Basketball Championships for the NC2A. She and her staff make March Madness come to life for all of us. Joanne provides us with the inside scoop on how Selection Sunday works, the elaborate logistical efforts required to make the tournament happen, and the transformative change occurring today at the NC2A. Joanne and I work together at Nike, where she spent 17 years in a variety of interesting and impactful sports marketing roles. Joanne also supported the amazing 1992 Dream Team while at USA Basketball. She witnessed the team's chemistry and professionalism firsthand while in Barcelona and played a key role in making the gold medal ceremony ever so memorable. Joanne also shares her experiences with what may be the greatest female sports team ever. Christian Leitner, Adam Sandler, Sister Jean, and even the Pope get shout-outs during this show as well. It's time to tip it off, sports fans. Joanne, welcome. I am so looking forward to catching up and talking about basketball today. And we're going to dive into your time at Nike and USA Basketball shortly. But I didn't want to bury the lead. Let's start talking about March Madness since you and your team are front and center in making that tournament happen. And we're only days away from the start. So welcome again. Why do you think that captivating sports moment is so magical for so many Americans? It's an honor to be here. I'm so excited to be here. And uh, it's been a while since I've gotten to see you. So it's great to talk to you. I think I learned the first year that the bracket has a lot to do with it. I think that the bracket brings the casual fan into the play. I think one and done has a lot to do with it. But what I see through the month of March is it gives folks a little bit of, I think it's a good transition time into spring. The weather's getting better. It's mm -hmm. winter's being behind us and you find that Cinderella and you fill out your bracket, I give the explanation. When my mother was alive, when I spoke to her, she and her friends, she was in an assisted living facility, and she and her friends were all filling out their bracket at lunch. She was 80. <laughs> but then I have nieces. We do a read to the Final Four program for literacy that are third graders, and they were filling out their brackets. Yeah. So I say from 8 to 80, but I do think the bracket has a lot to do with it. I really do. I think you're right. And it it was always fun to see a president. Obama always did this, right? He would share mm -hmm. his bracket the day before. And I don't think he fared very well. But that's the thing is, nobody has the perfect bracket, right? But I think that in part makes it so interesting because it's the bracket beaters and the last second baskets from the Cinderella teams. And it's the raw energy and passion of the athletes on the court. And we were watching first round last year, not a player, but that cheerleader from Indiana and who yeah, basically yeah. figures out. So a ball gets stuck up yeah, in the rafters, so to speak. That tweet went viral. That was so great because then the crew there can't figure out how to get the basketball down. And then the young cheerleader gets on the shoulders of one of the guys and basically pulls it down and the whole stadium erupts. And it's those kind of moments that are so unexpected that make it so unique. If you reflect back on your tenure at the NC2A, is there one game or one player or one tournament that stands out maybe in your mind? above all others? I'm from Switzerland when I work at the NCAA. Sure, yeah, so yeah, I yeah. wear a lot of black and I wear a lot of <laughs> cream and I wear a lot of white 
But I will say in my 10 years, the game in 2016 with Villanova and Chris Jenkins hitting the last shot was absolutely stakes out. I think it's probably in the last 10 years, the most memorable, especially knowing that the shot before that put North Carolina in the lead. That one does. But I think the things that stick with me are more the stories. Mm. And I think of like Sister Jean. Yeah, The thing about March Madness is it's a great storytelling time of the yep. year. And you who know who Sister Jean was that wasn't a Loyola grad. And so I love the great stories that come out of it that and, that, and so I think that's a lovely, heartwarming story as well. That is. And even last year with St. Peter's, I honestly didn't even know where the university was until they beat the two seed as a 15 seed. And then my son and I are basically about to walk into the Rose Garden to see our you know, first round mm-hmm. games. And we're like, where in the world is this university? But it's those kind of things. We're going to talk about the inner workings of the tournament in just a moment. But let's go back to your own sports roots. So you grew up in a small town in Nebraska. Do you remember when you first fell in love with sports? I do. I come from a large Catholic family, five kids got me into it. But what I remember most vividly, I guess, especially for females, there weren't women's sports on television. But what I remember was we would go to mass at 1130, we would come home and have lunch. And then we would watch the Boston Celtics. And if you remember, there's just a lot of the Boston Celtics and the Lakers and the Knicks. And that was about it. game of the week on Sunday, I think it was. And so my dad would have me watch the game and keep track of Jojo White of the Celtics and his assists. He wanted me to learn it was more about shooting and how he dished the ball. So that is is my youngest, I would say, memory of watching the sport. And I think I was four or five years old at that wow. time. Is your dad a coach or just an interested parent? Nope. But my dad was very much a good athlete and then he went to war. And so he just really wanted us to play sports and his, especially his daughters. That's great. If you reflect back, Title IX comes onto the scene in 1972. Mm-hmm. But from your long career in sports, in many instances being involved with women's sports, talk about the impact of that bill. I just mentioned my father, but really my mother was the one that was out playing Mm. sports with us growing up, teaching us how to throw the ball, teaching us how to shoot. And she would look us, look me in the face and my sisters and say, I didn't get this opportunity. We didn't have this when I was in high school. So you are going to take advantage of this opportunity. So it affected me that way, just from my mother. But even in my high school, my father was the president of the school board, hired Pat Hoblin in 1972 to be the volleyball coach. Mm -hmm. She won the state volleyball championship a year later, went on to coach 40 years, is one of my dearest friends. It was probably the most influential coach in my life. Mm -hmm. Had they not had Title IX, had she not? coached and developed such a program, I'm not sure sports would have had such an impact on me. And then I was a part of the 92 dream team, but the 92 women's Olympic team in 96, where it was everything the WNBA had started in 1996. So it's just, it's been in my life since my mom looked at me in the eye and said, you will play sports. That's great. And you end up playing collegiate basketball and volleyball. You go to the mm-hmm. University of Nebraska at Kearney. What mm-hmm. were some of your favorite moments, either on the court or off the court during college? Well, a lot of the girls that played volleyball, I played volleyball for three years till I blew my knee. I played one year of basketball. First and foremost, the greatest memory is playing with my sister. She was on the team as well. But a lot of the girls were from small towns that did really well. And Nebraska is a really strong state for volleyball. So I think Mm -hmm. the great friendships that we had there, but I had a job working in the athletic department. And it really is what set me on this career is I worked for the basketball coaches, Jerry Heiser and Tom Kropp. I ran their camps. I ran the recruiting letters. 
I did their scouting reports, everything. I was the administrative person. And that really is what got me probably my Uh first job. So that's my, that's one of my best memories. You already referenced 92 in Barcelona Mm -hmm. and the dream team, and you were working for USA basketball at the time. So you were embedded within that whole experience. What made it so special for you personally? Made it so special is I don't want to say I wasn't enamored, but I was just raised in a household and by parents that were like, you should treat everybody equally. So I wasn't, I would say too enamored, but I also didn't hang out with the players. But what was so special to me was the level of professionalism and the level of which they played basketball every day. My greatest memories are the practices. It wasn't, hey, let's just run through an offense here. It was very competitive. And so that was the best memory. And that and just the level of professionalism they brought to everything they did. They brought a serious approach to every day. I would have to say I was a little surprised by that. There wasn't worrying about playing time. It was just overall, everybody looking out for the team. What was on front of the jersey, not what was on back of the jersey. I think... Chuck Daly, who was the head coach, did a Mm -hmm. masterful job. And of course, you have Coach K in a supporting role Mm -hmm. and PJ. But you have 11 future NBA Hall of Famers on that squad. Was there one player in your mind that stood out, whether it was a personal connection or just watching him either on or off the court? They were all great. But me personally, I made a deeper connection with John Stockton. John Stockton really was the one I made the personal connection with. For some reason, with his kids and his family, and yeah. I still to this day talk to John. I talk to him. I see him in the tournament. I We talk on the phone every now and again. And he got injured. So the way he handled it, we had a lot of injuries on that team, but the way he handled it, that's who I made probably the closest connection to with on that team was John and Nada and, and all of his kids. I will say to you, having the Nike connection, I will tell a little secret. I was the one that got the flags to, and this was before Ooh. I was at USA Basketball. Dave Gavitt, who was the president of USA Basketball, asked me, can you get three American flags? Mm-hmm. for the medal ceremony. So I went around and it was on closing ceremony day in the gold medal game. So I'm the one that got the flags that went over and Michael and Charles and Scotty's wow. shoulders and um, used them and then took them back and got them to the rightful owners. I was the one scrambling to find three American flags. Good for you. One of the momentous things about that event though, is that these athletes become international celebrities. It really ultimately changes the game of basketball. Now, if you fast forward, there are 141 NBA players who are international. And the last four MVPs have come from overseas. So that truly has changed the game. When you were flying off to Barcelona before the start, did you have any sense for how big this moment would be? I did as far as the team. I didn't as far as how it would grow the sport. I knew it was a part of the NBA's vision of growing the sport. We had just came from training camp in La Jolla in San Diego. And I remember being in a gymnasium where I was hearing things and there were kids hiding up in the wrestling mat. They had slept overnight. (laughs) And then when we would leave, there would be thousands and thousands of people out there just to get a glimpse of the team. So there was a lot of rock stars on that tour. And it really was like traveling with the Beatles. So that piece I knew was going to be crazy. I knew it was, but I didn't know the extreme of how most of the Olympic athletes couldn't wait to see them. And we took the team into the village and oh my gosh, it got crazy with people on the bus. So it was that I wasn't ready for at all. I don't know if anybody was ready for that. Now you also are involved with the Dream Team 2 in Atlanta in 96. And sometimes that team gets forgotten, but there's some amazing players there as well. You've got Reggie Miller and Shaq and Steve Smith and Dominique. Any special memories coming out of Atlanta for you, either on the men's side or the women's side? Because arguably that women's team that you're involved with may be one of the greatest 
female teams of all Ever. time in any sport when you think about who's on that squad. Because you've got Cheryl Swoops, Don Staley, Lisa Leslie, Rebecca Lobo, and a ton of superstars. So the awesome thing about that women's national team is I remember going to China, I think, the May before the Olympics. And we started a year-long we played, I think, 40 games against Division One schools and foreign teams, oh, wow. took them to China to play. And it really did elevate the sport. I remember even in Washington, D.C., the female Supreme Court justices met with us. So that was cool. And so the momentum, usually you're getting your team together, you play and you're over. So to be able to be with them for the year and then see them win the gold medal was very rewarding. So I agree with you. I still think it's the best team ever. But now, then, unfortunately, on the men's side, the thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is the bomb threat. Yeah. No, and the bomb. Right, yeah. And unfortunately, our hotel was overlooking the Olympic Park. So we were right in the heart of it. And when you're in charge of operations events, then like you go, your mind goes there. And so that's the first thing I thought of when you say that is, but that again, and again, that the players weren't used to it and the players were not sure yeah. what to do. And it was keeping everybody calm and the way it was handled after it happened. What I remember is several players came back uh, and played. I think it was Carl. I think John Stockton. There were several. And it was just as exciting for them to play this time. What I remember is, again, you're on your American soil. These guys were so fired up. NBA guys making paychecks of what we know, and they were so fired up to be playing. That's what I remember. It's amazing when you're representing your country and you've seen it live. After USA Basketball, you join Nike. Mm -hmm. And arguably, you're there during the golden years. You're there from 96 through 2013, 17 amazing years. Is there one role within your tenure there that stands out as being exceptional, one that you loved more than anything? Yeah, I probably the last role I was in, I was overseeing Olympic sports marketing and the U.S. Olympic Committee relationship. Having come from USA Basketball, it really was my wheelhouse. I knew the intricacies of the U.S. Olympic Committee, but it also was the Olympic. It wasn't the U.S. OPC yet, but we also oversaw the Paralympics. It yeah. really was, for me, very rewarding. I enjoyed it, and I think that I brought a different kind of thinking to that. Mm -hmm. And because you're there for London, for Vancouver, and as you and I know, Nike takes a different slant with regard to the Olympics, right? Because mm -hmm. Adidas was the official sponsor, but mm -hmm. that didn't prohibit Nike from leaving its imprint, both in terms of advertising and on the field. Anything special in that respect in terms of how it was marketed? I remember in London, they came to me and said, we need you to go help us pitch the metal stand uniform to mm -hmm. the USOC, but we're going to do three of them. I said, what do you mean? It's been one all of their lives. And they said, no, we're going to do three. So we did three different metal stand uniforms and we broke up all the sports in London and we pitched it. And so it was very much outside the box thinking, which Nike does better than anybody. And it was having the relationships to say, you have to trust us. This will not backlash. And so I thought that was a really cool approach that we took mm. at that time. And then the other piece I would say is signing, I worked with Lori Roth in Olympic sports marketing, who you know, signing Misty May Trainer and Sean yeah. Johnson. I just think I had several people, it won't surprise you, they said, I'm not sure. You better be careful. You might lose your job over this because they play a <laughs> sport where you're barefoot. Why would you sign an athlete? Yeah, that yeah, is barefoot. Yeah, but yeah. I reminded them when we, and this is why sports marketing was so important. When you go watch them train, they want to wear the lightest shoe possible because they play barefoot. So mm -hmm. when they're out running, they don't like heavy shoes. When they're out training, they want barefoot like shoes. And as we were doing Nike freeze then. And so they love the Nike freeze because they felt like it was barefoot training. And I just think that they were really good stewards of Nike and the Olympics and young girls everywhere. 
When you were working at Nike, was there one boss or leader that mm -hmm. really captivated you that stood out above all others? Kit Morris was my long-term yeah. boss there yeah. and the nicest man ever. I could tell him anything I ever wanted to tell him. I didn't hold back and he was very approachable. I think probably most people that you talk to, that I talk to, I think there's not anybody more special than Elliot Hill. Elliot just had a very personable and caring approach about him. And he really did care in a large organization where it's hard with that many employees. I think Elliot, I just really felt when I see him present, when I would see people talk, when I saw him, especially as a female, how he was promoting women, I really admired him and still do. I think that's an amazing choice. There was a difficult period of time a few years back where Nike was facing some, for the lack of a better term, some Me Too moments. And just by chance, because Nike had set up some corporate leaders to talk to the masses, so to speak. So we're there on a Monday morning. There's probably no more than 20 of us. And that's the topic du jour at the time. And he was so straightforward, so from the heart as a compelling leader, we're going to change this, we're going to correct this. But it felt like you were talking to a friend versus yep. at the time, the president. And although that might sound like that's the way it should be, clearly it's not the way that it always is. So after a really successful career at Nike, you do leave for the NC2A. What motivated you to make that change? Because that's a big one. Yeah, I think it's, I talk to students a lot about this. I want to be a professor in my next life, in my next <laughs> career, a post-career. I think that in my career, I had 10 years at USA Basketball. I had 17 at Nike. And then I felt like I had another 10 or so left. And I thought, I think there's this time at Nike and I saw it with employees. You either leave or you're staying until you retire. So I felt like I'm either going to leave now and find something different, or I'm probably here till I retire. Hopefully, knowing that I'd already survived several layoffs. I really did love college sports and I really did gravitate toward athletic directors of college sports. I just really enjoyed them at Nike when we would take them to Vietnam and show them our, our factories and interacting with them on the college sports marketing side. And so I had just started reaching out to a lot of them about I really wanted to be in college athletics. I actually thought, Mark, I brought a different background than most people in college athletics who come in through their university and right. stay in their athletic department. I had that marketing background. So let's talk about your current role and what that actually encompasses at the NC2A. I oversee the day-to-day -day of the March Madness and Final Four for men's basketball, which is basically, I would say, lately a lot of problem solving, a lot of fires you're putting out, but it's just really day-to-day -day from, we have a 12-person team, which isn't much, that work on men's basketball day-to-day, -day, but we have about 50 that work on it throughout the year. But it's overseeing everything from our preliminary round sites, where before we even get to Houston this year, we have 13 preliminary round sites. Our member institutions help us run these events, which is really good. We couldn't do it without them. Just like we were in Portland last year. So we're working with all those cities, getting all the venues, the, getting the tickets set up, the hammer angles, all of our broadcast partners with Warner Brothers and CBS come in and figure out camera angles and seat kills and hotel rooms. They've been booked for a couple of years, but we go in and we secure hotel rooms and make sure those are all set and teams are good, buses. We're doing a lot of logistics between now and then. And then I just oversee all that from day-to-day decision-making to, and then Final Four mostly is a lot of public safety 
It's building a basketball arena as big as the Rose Garden inside of NRG Stadium. We bring yeah, in which anywhere huge. from eighteen to 25,000 seats. So that that's a lot of logistics. So it's all of the above. You mentioned logistics, and there's a great quote, and it's from the renowned Chinese general and philosopher Sun Xu, who says, the line between disorder and order lies in logistics. So I think as a fan, as we're watching, we don't see any of the magic that has to occur off mic you had talked also about the flights, the transportation. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little more on that front? Because it's fascinating what actually has to happen. From Selection Sunday, the show starts at 6 o'clock. And as soon as we release the brackets, it's about 6.42. We are going to have 68 men's teams. My counterparts on the women's side would be doing the same thing. Their show is a little bit later. But our counterparts at our 68 schools are calling in. They've already done a lot of this ahead of time, have uploaded their passenger manifests and so forth. But we're bidding out routes. We don't know who's coming. We know where we're going for mm -hmm. our, our <laughs> site, but we don't know where you're coming from. So we're booking aircraft. It's not quite 68, of course, because some drive. But it's a good 50 plus, a large-bodied aircraft. Because one of the things about March Madness people, I think, also love is the cheer and the band and yeah, the mascot. They all yep. travel. So we're booking that. You can imagine bus. And you can imagine practice times, you get the wrong practice time, you got two teams that show up at the same site. Officials, we assign the officials on Sunday night. They don't know what games they're officiating, but they know what oh, fights they're going to. So they're booking their flights. And then Sunday night is really everybody who's made the tournament gets on a call and we walk through the tournament and we do that by site. So this year, if you're in Columbus, you get on a call with Columbus. And if you're in Dayton in the first four, you get on a call with Dayton. And so it's got a really good routine to it. But I think our teams are used to going, okay, we got to be ready here because from the selection show at 6 p.m. Eastern, the next morning as early as 6 a.m. Eastern, we could have teams in the air to go to the first foreign date. And that's bidding out the airplane and getting it. We position them. We have to sometimes, but it's getting the plane there, getting the crew there and getting them to where they need to go. And that's taking into consideration weather. A couple of years ago, we had, to, I think it might be the year Villanova won it. We had to get them to Buffalo early because there was a snowstorm. You mentioned things going wrong, and clearly the pandemic led to the cancellation of the 2020 tournament. Can you talk a little bit about how that decision was made to cancel the tournament? Sure. We were in New York City with our men's basketball committee, and we had heard it was becoming more and more prevalent. The name was. It was more coronavirus then. And, our, and we had met with our broadcast partners that day, and they asked us anything you guys have heard. And we had started voting, and we had voted teams and done our voting procedures. And we kind of took a pause because remember, the committee is Division One athletic directors and conference commissioners. So they're starting to get calls from their presidents, their membership going, wait a minute here, we might be shutting down campuses. And then we might be shutting down our conference tournament. And so we had people that were hearing it from their side. And then Rudy Gobey tested positive and the NBA shut down. But we had really, I'd gone to bed the night before thinking, and we were trying to move sites. Like the states, if you remember, Washington was struck. We had games in Spokane, so we were relocating it. And Ohio was bad. We had games in Dayton. We were relocating it, not knowing what we were up against. So we, I went to bed. I had relocated four sites, and I was feeling pretty good. And then I woke up the next day. And I think the thing I would say to you is it happened so fast. That night, we stayed up trying to, could we come up with a Sweet 16? Yeah. Could we at least give it a week and come up with a sweet 16 to at least say we got say we need to have a tournament. These teams want to have a tournament. There was a lot of, of that going on, but it just happened so fast. You're, you're right, because you make that cancellation decision, I believe, five days before the tournament's to start. Yeah, it was a Thursday that we made the cancellation 
or that the committee voted. Again, all of our championships, we talk about March Madness, all of our spring and winter championships were canceled. So it was a decision made by our board of governors that just canceled it all, including, if you remember, I think there was some criticism because we canceled the spring game, the spring championships during March. It was, I think it was just, it was surreal. And yeah, one of the things I think I forgot to mention was that you're also responsible for not just division one on the men's side, but two and three, as well as the NIT. Yeah. And we had experienced it with the division three championship because Yeshiva was playing at Johns Hopkins. And uh, Johns Hopkins is the number one research hospital for COVID. And so Yeshiva was traveling there and they we were struggling. They wouldn't allow fans. Mm-hmm. So we were getting a taste of it a couple of weeks before, but we did not know it would take on that quick of a spread with the United States. And 2021 is handled in a really innovative manner as well. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? So I think it was May 2020 when I was watching the NBA bubble and I texted my boss saying, I think maybe we're... If this is still going on. Remember, we didn't know, right, how long it was going to last. I said, I think maybe we should go to a city where we can. And I suggested Indianapolis because of the connecting hotel walkways. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think having our offices here and our buildings here and our staff here, we could probably get some really good local support. But we sat on it because once fall came around, we said, okay, it might be getting better. And then by the end of the year, we had announced we're coming to Indianapolis. And again, all of our teams connected to a convention center. It was like a student union. All of them were walking back and forth to practices on their own buses to games. We did a six foot away crowd and we didn't know we did have crowds though so families could come but mm-hmm. they were definitely in a controlled environment and then we luckily had a minor league baseball field across the street from all the hotels so through the tunnels they could go outside and uh, they played football and baseball and the coaches could walk around the infield so it was good it's great That's as awesome. good as it could be Speaking of evolving, complex situations, if we pull up a little bit and think about NIL, name, image, and likeness, and the opening of the transfer portal, from an NC2A standpoint, what goes through your mind as you think about how collegiate sports is just changing at such a quick pace? I applaud it. I embrace it. I come from a different background. But the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was, I've probably been at the NCA in a transformational period of time where there's been more change in 18 months than there's been in 70 years. This was a model that has been in place for a very long time. We're now on Final Four, 85th Final Four, I think, or 85th tournament. It's been in place a very long time. And that's what everybody knows. I came from the business side and I came from the side of marketing. So that's just me personally. Personally, that's my sure. personal opinion when you ask me that. But it has been interesting, Mark, to see that name, image, likeness. That is all state laws. It all refers back to each state's law on what name, image, likeness is and the transfer portal. I think getting the line everybody tells me is I think most people support it but they want to get their arms around it better. Yeah, definitely. So I think our membership just wants some more guide rails. I think everybody does, wants a little bit more guide rails around it. Again, I'm not in the governance portion of the NCAA, but I'm one that has always been supportive of those opportunities. I think you're right. I don't think there are many people out there that begrudge college athletes making some money, but they want it done in an environment that's fair where certain Mm -hmm. universities don't have an advantage over others. Now, realistically, it won't be totally equitable because some universities in bigger markets with collective opportunities in front of them will have an advantage over some smaller universities. You also mentioned one and done's earlier in the year. I wonder if NIL will now have an influence on keeping student athletes in school for just a little bit longer. 
financial yeah, I think Drew Timmy at Gonzaga is yeah. a really good example yeah. Yeah. that with NIL, and he's been very vocal on that. Here's what I would say. If you're listening to this and you're a graduate student, I just mm-hmm. hope somebody's studying everything about yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Who's benefited? Who hasn't? All the intricacies. I think it's a fascinating research paper, a research project. This does seem like a Harvard case study in the making. Speaking of things that are detailed and complex, you were good enough to send me some videos, NC2A created videos, basically (laughs) reinforcing the formula that goes into play here to ensure fairness and accuracy when it comes to selection and seating and bracketing. My takeaway from looking at these detailed videos was you guys know exactly what you're doing, and this is about as fair as any situation could be played out. Now, having said that, of course, there are going to be fans when teams on the bubble, they don't make it, they're going to complain, et cetera, et cetera. But I came away thinking, boy, you guys have this buttoned up. Is there a common fan myth that you want to dispel, though, when it comes to either selection or seating or bracketing? Yeah, it is a very intricate process. And I studied it for a year before I really got to see it come through. Once you see it, I think the videos do help you with that. I would say when we bracket, which you saw in one of the videos, it's an Excel sheet. And we're bracketing by geographic regions and mileage. The myth I would like to really just crush for some people is that we set up these ridiculous matchups mm-hmm. intentionally. Because <laughs> once you see that we do it in an Excel sheet and we do it by mileage, it just happens that maybe somebody's playing. The one I can think of is that when Steve Wojciechowski was at Marquette, he would have been playing Duke if they both won however many games. It was like, that is not what happens. It is not what happens when a former coach is playing with another former coach. It is done regionally and there's principles that are in place and that's the way it comes out and it's on an Excel sheet and then it goes out to a bracket. It's done with very much following principles and procedures. Let's talk about Selection Sunday because that's fascinating. I think that's where the fan would want to be embedded within those conversations that go on. So much prep goes into it before you get to that moment in time Mm -hmm. after all the conference tournaments are done. Take us inside and show us what that is like. What's interesting is most people don't understand that we're still picking teams to late Saturday night. It's usually a very late Saturday night. And we are finalizing a lot of those decisions after the Saturday conference games are over because they automatic qualify qualifiers into play. But I think this year on Selection Sunday, there are five conference championship games. And so we have to have contingencies. So what we spend Sunday morning doing is if this team wins the Big Ten tournament or that team wins the Big Ten tournament, if this team wins the Atlantic Ten or that team. And it really is just several seedless because if a team wins or a team loses or an AQ's in or an AQ's not in, at large was an, is now an AQ. So you're watching those five championships, but we cannot give anybody a final bracket till that last championship's over. And that's the Big Ten championship. Now we'll have two brackets. If this team wins in the Big Ten, here's your bracket. And if this team wins, here's the bracket. But I've had 12 brackets that we're going from, depending on who wins and who loses, what games and so forth. So it's very chaotic, I would say, as far as brackets. It's not chaotic as far as, I would say, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But I think most people think we just push out a bracket and we're done, but you have to have various brackets. And a lot of it's because of the five games that go on Selection Sunday. We typically get the bracket to CBS. The show's at six. We'll get it to them 5.30, 5.45. Some years we can get it to them sooner, but it's usually right before the show goes on. They're ready for it. They do a phenomenal job of turning it around. That's when the teams, just so you know, that's when the teams find out. They don't get a letter. They're watching that show. 
And when it comes down to the final decisions being made, you've got 12 people in a room, right? Your committee is basically making these calls live in person. Talk about a little bit about the dynamics there and how that interaction takes place. Mm -hmm. We have 12 committee members. They represent geography and they also represent everything from the five conferences that have a permanent seat on there to all the other mid-majors in college basketball across the board, whether it's an FBS school, a Division One school, or whether it's an FCS. It doesn't matter. It's represented equally. And so they're representing it and they're assigned conferences to monitor. But it's really up to all 12 because they're voting. They're each voting. So it's very respectful. It's very much people feel, I think, They feel very open to ask a question, but it's not a debate and it's Mm -hmm. not to influence. It's factual information that is shared and discussed and a lot of data, a lot of data that they're going through because it's not just selecting them. People just think about the teams and getting selected. It's also seating them because seating them in the right order also can make a big difference in a tournament. And I think fans have that sense, right? Because if you're seated two versus three, that can alter your fortunes within the tournament. Or if you could be sent back east versus stay at home, that can influence the dynamics and what's going to happen. And you mentioned some things that fans just don't know. And I think one of those things is the NC2A is a nonprofit organization. People know that. But the amount of revenue that comes from basketball is so astronomically high. High. I think the assumption might be, no, it comes from football too, but mm-hmm. that's not the case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So at the NCAA, we do not oversee college football. The college football playoff oversees college football. So that revenue goes through the membership of college football. But the Division One men's basketball revenue is the main source of income. It's about 95%, just short of $900 million that comes from the men's basketball championship that funds NCAA championships in general and is distributed to our membership. So definitely. Definitely men's basketball and again, football over the oversight is by yeah, so, the college so, football playoff. So no pressure on you and your team. Right? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> One final serious question for you. Now, your career has taken you all over the world. It's allowed you to attend some of the biggest games imaginable and to interact with some of the greatest players and coaches of our generation. What's been the one shining moment of your career, the best basketball moment in your life? The first thing I can say to you on that one is the Dream Team Gold Medal Ceremony and sitting there going, this was because it was all over. I have to say it wasn't as fun as people might think it was because, you know, when it's your job and you're young, you're like, I can't mess this up. Yeah. The bus can't be late for the dream team. The food can't be bad for the dream. Your laundry's got to be ready. All the <laughs> operational stuff, the gym lights got to be on. The plane better be clean. You can't mess it up up for the dream team. So I think I got to exhale a little when the gold medal ceremony for the dream team happened because I was like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this moment until this national anthem's over because I can live in the moment. It's hard in this world to live in the moment because you're just preparing for preparing to problem solve if something goes wrong. As you're talking about this, it's almost like you're a fighter pilot going into war, right? And you're like just on alert and I'm hoping that you had a glass of sangria when it was all over or a nice (laughs) glass of red wine. I just wanted to sleep at that time. (laughs) That's all I wanted. But yeah, it's just, if you're in the business of events, nowhere would I ever compare myself to a fighter pilot of what the risk they put them in. But I think it's the skills that you're saying. You have to be prepared for anything that's thrown at you. Yes. So let's end with a couple of fun, quick hitter questions. Christian Leitner or Bobby Hurley? That's a really good question. I would have to say 
it's my personal experience when Christian Leitner was on several of our teams at USA Basketball. And so he, for some reason, the team had convinced me to drive them to a movie theater to watch Indiana Jones. And we all sat in the front row and I wow. sat right by him and he was just like a kid. So I, that's my memories. So I have probably just with the dream team as well and his family. So just not because of probably talent, but just more, I knew him better, a little bit better. I think that's great because he needs that positive press, right? Because it's easy yeah, to hate. Go. So good for you. Now, <laughs> if a you good could... show, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. That's the ESPN documentary. So if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would that be? Oh, wow. Who would I switch lives with? Anybody for a day? I'm Catholic. And the thing that comes to mind is like the Pope. Wow. I used to say Mother Teresa a lot when she was alive. I was just loved Mother Teresa. And I actually got to not meet her, but interact with her. So the Pope would be one completely out of my normal zone. Not anybody in sports, but I would love to see a day in the life of the Pope. I think that's great. There are some amazing basketball movies. What's your favorite? Mm. I'm going to give you a couple to choose from, but you can go off script as well here. So some of my favorites, Space Jam, the original, Hoop Dreams. Mm -hmm. I love Love and Basketball from an SC Connection standpoint. Hoosiers. And he got game. What's your favorite? I just watched the Adam Sandler one on oh, Netflix, yeah, yeah. and it was yeah. really good. But I would probably say, I have to say Hoosiers. I yeah. live in Indiana. I got to yeah, say nah, Hoosiers. That makes total sense. Beyond one shining moment, what's your favorite celebratory song? I always liked We Are the Champion. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was That's like it. my, that was like during my high school years. So you remember your high school years and we won state volleyball and we sang it at the top of our lungs. Yeah. One last question for you. What's the one event that has most shaped your life? Wow. I think I would have to say I go back to the 92 Olympics. And I don't want everybody to think that's the everything that drove me through this life. But at a young age, to see and to, the expectations of how to do your job to the highest level. I promised myself when I left the dream team that I would treat everything I did like the dream team. So I left there and ran another junior national team with USA Basketball, which is 18 and unders. I treated them the same way. I think that event just set me on a trajectory. This is the way you should run an event. This is the way you should treat people. And this is the expectations you should have, the gold medal standard. And I think that completely changed my mindset and is probably what set me on my career trajectory. That makes total sense. And it seems like it was such a great learning experience for you. It was. And I think that's the thing that not everybody in their late 20s or early 30s, when they have this big opportunity, they, they don't know that the imprint that those events or experiences will have on their career to come. I use the John Wooden Pyramid a lot to our, the young men that work for us. Mm-hmm. And I talk about your building blocks at the bottom, only at your career. You don't even realize how that's setting you up for where you get to the top of your career. But yeah. what, everything you're learning, I learned so much there that just has really helped me make the right decisions in my career. That's perfect. Let's end with that. So, Joanne, this has been wonderful. I really awesome. appreciate you sharing your amazing career Absolutely. with us. And what a journey that you have had. And so best of luck with this upcoming March Madness and the NIT tournament to follow. And may those events be filled with dramatic upsets and spine tingling (laughs) buzzer beaters. And so cheers. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Wow. What an incredible career journey. Hopefully you enjoyed gaining an insider's perspective on March Madness, the Dream Team, and that stellar 1996 U.S. Women's Squad. 
As I was editing this episode, I thought about how often faith is mentioned by my guests. In some respects, that makes sense, since I'm focused on inspirational game changers that have overcome obstacles to achieve success, whether that be on the field of play or in the sports business world. In Joanne's case, as a devout Catholic, she said that she'd love to spend a day in the life of the Pope. Via texts afterwards, Joanne said that would allow her to experience what a day filled with nonstop prayer would feel like. It would also help put her own challenges in perspective, given the tremendous amount of pain and joy that the Pope is exposed to daily. Since religion and politics are so personal, I generally don't directly ask my guests about either. But many of my favorite guests have enthusiastically spoken about the importance of faith in their own personal journeys. Jake Olson, Jim Morris, Bob Kalemi, David Gelfand, Iowa Borders, and Zach Banner immediately come to mind. My conversation with Joanne also reminded me about how global basketball has become. As you heard, Joanne and I both believe that the impact of the Dream Team in fueling this international growth can't be overstated. Now, let me try and tie these two seemingly divergent threads together, religion and international basketball. My college team is USC, as many of you know, and they're currently on the tournament bubble. My son and I watched the Trojans trounce Colorado in a must-win game right after I spoke with Joanne. While the squad may miss out on being selected this year, reinforcements are on the way next fall as Isaiah Collier, the number one recruit in the country, has committed to play for USC. O.J. Mayo was the last number one recruit to sign with the Trojans back in 2007. So that got me thinking about where OJ might be today. I knew he was retired from the NBA, but little did I know that he's now playing basketball in Cairo in the Egyptian Basketball Super League. I, for one, had no idea that Egypt even had a professional basketball league. Furthermore, FIBA, the International Basketball Federation, now ranks 164 men's national basketball teams. I don't think that number would have exceeded 50 prior to the emergence of Michael Jordan and the Dream Team. So where's the religious connection, you ask? Well, my wife and I are only days away from departing for Egypt with our own church group, and it looks like OJ's Zamalek team will be playing in Cairo while we're there. Thanks for indulging me with this small world story. Since one shining moment should probably only be played at the conclusion of the big dance, I'll leave you now instead with Joanne's favorite celebratory song. Until next time, sports fans, please enjoy a cut from Queens, We Are the Champions. I've taken my bows and my curtain calls. You brought me fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. I thank you all, but it's been no bed of roses. 